Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning, and uh, we're going to start a new series this morning, and it's going to be based on the book that I think most of you have obtained by this time. It's this classic book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we're going to be going through it chapter by chapter. And my job this morning is to just tell you a little bit about the guy who wrote the book, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer lived in very interesting times. He was uh, actually a contemporary of Adolf Hitler in Germany, and uh, that made a big difference in his life. Bonhoeffer, I read this uh, big biography of, of Bonhoeffer a few years back by Eric Metaxas. It's a great book. And the subtitle is Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. He was all of those things. And so we're just going to take a look at his life and the lessons that we can learn right from his life and how that ties into the book that we're going to be reading. Um, I want to talk, first of all, about Bonhoeffer, and then I'm going to talk about what the situation was like in his country and, and what that meant for his life. Um, Bonhoeffer was uh, born in 1906. He only lived 39 years. And this is a picture of his family when he was about five. If you take a look at that picture and you look in like the back row of the eight kids in the Bonhoeffer household, there's a kid who's kind of a blonde sitting to the, to the left of his mother. That was Bonhoeffer, I think, when he was about five years old. And in the inset picture on the bottom, that's a picture of him with his twin sister, Sabina, when he was probably about eight. Uh, the Bonhoeffers were a real well-to-do family. Uh, very well known in the country. His father was the most famous psychiatrist in the country. Uh, the family was like uh, heavily into music. Um, they were all adept musicians. Bonhoeffer himself was like uh, known as just a great uh, piano player. And every Saturday night, the family would get together and they'd have musical night at the Bonhoeffer household. And they would play and they would sing. And this is a picture, by the way, taken at their summer home. So, I mean, they're a pretty well-to-do family uh, that flew in, like, upper circles there in Germany. In 1919, when Bonhoeffer was about 13 years old, he announced to his family that uh, he wanted to be a theologian. They weren't too thrilled about that. The family was, like, professionals. Uh, you know, guys had gone into being lawyers and doctors and things like that, and they're going, you want to be a theologian? What's, what's up with that? His dad was not a believer. His dad was an agnostic uh, all of his life. His mother was somebody who didn't attend church much, but she taught the whole family, all the kids, the things of God. And, and uh, Bonhoeffer had grown up as a, as a believer. And uh, when he was 17 years old in 1923, he entered the seminary. That, be, that stayed with him. He wanted to become this theologian. Um, and then something happened that was big in Bonhoeffer's life. In, uh, when he was 18 years old, he went to visit Rome as a tourist, and he loved to visit other churches and stuff. You know, he'd grown up in this German Lutheran church, but he went to Mass at uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and while he was there, it just blew him away. He was like, oh my goodness. He realized there were people there who were from Africa, from Asia, from all over the world, um, and this just opened up Bonhoeffer's idea about what the church is really like. You know, up to this point, he'd been like, okay, the church is basically German Lutherans. You know, and, and we just do get this kind of narrow attitude sometimes. I mean, I'm, I know when I'm 
teaching my classes and I tell them, you know, the country in the world that has the most, the biggest number of Christians is actually China. They're like, whoa. And I go like, you know, the, co- the continent that has the highest percentage of Christians in the world is Africa. I mean, it's like we have this idea sometimes that Christians all kind of look like us in terms of regionalism and ethnicity and stuff like that. And this just opened Bonhoeffer's eyes to something that was much bigger. I, I've told the story before, but I remember this time years ago when I was teaching at Lutheran West, or I still am, but I mean, it was back in my career. And um, this girl in my class raised her hand in a religion class, and she goes like, Mr. Fenske, do you think Catholics can go to heaven? And I thought, what a weird question. But this is back when denominations were a much bigger deal, right? And uh, I said, what do you think? And she said, well, you know, I think maybe if they believe at least 50% of what Lutherans believe, they can go to heaven. I mean, that's the kind of parochial attitude sometimes we have. And Bonhoeffer, when he visited Rome, this really disabused him of it. He saw the churches as a, as a huge thing, right? And it, he began to, suddenly it, he realized what Revelation 7 was about. You know, in Revelation 7, John says this, After this, I saw a vast crowd. He's talking about what heaven is like. Too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. The church is all who call on the name of Jesus, right? And, uh, you know, this is a, that first couple of lines of that verse 9. That is something that's a great encouragement to missionaries who go into countries where there are no known believers. And they go like, you know, we got a promise from God here that people from every people group, there's going to be representatives in heaven. People from every language. And I know Bible translators, you know, we've got some friends that I support doing that and and they are going to places where the Bible is unknown, you know, and people don't even have a written language. And they, uh, and they go like, yeah, it says every language is going to be represented there. So Bonhoeffer's vision of the church grew large, you know, when he visited Rome. Well, uh, in 1927, when he was 21 years old, he got his doctorate. But by this time... He was thinking, you know, I don't want to be a a theologian, just a theologian. I mean, that's nice, but I want to be doing, I want to be working with the church, with the people in the church. I want to be raising up people. And he decided he wanted to, to be in pastoral ministry. But then something happened that was just a real breakthrough again in his life. And I think this was his second great epiphany here, right? This was in 1930. And he wanted to do some postgraduate studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. So he came to New York, and while he was there, he, had, uh, he met a guy named Fred Foster. Fred Foster was a black student who was at Union Theological Seminary. He said, I want you to come to my church. And so he took Bonhoeffer to uh, the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. All black church largest church in the United States, okay? And Bonhoeffer was just like, wow, this is incredible. For one thing, one of the things that really like blew his mind was the fact that these people were singing from their hearts to the Lord. I mean, they were worshiping. This was like with great enthusiasm. This was something he had never experienced before 
because the German Lutheran Church was kind of like you were born into it. In fact, you were a default, a default member of that church unless you opted out. And tax money, there was a church tax that everybody paid unless they opted out of that, and salaries of pastors were paid from that. And so it was sort of like a civic membership. I mean, people had their names on the rolls, but they weren't very interested in it. And uh, when they'd come to church, they'd kind of like, you know, go through the liturgy, check off that box, get out of there. Um, there was just not a whole lot of interest. And the other thing he noticed about these people was that they were really living out the life of being Christians. This was not just, hey, I know some religious facts. I got a place where I can be baptized and buried from. But this is like a lifestyle. And he could see them putting into practice what they believed in their communities. This was a, a life transformational experience to know Jesus Christ. This was something that was completely different than what Bonhoeffer had experienced in Germany. You know, there's a, a passage that's from 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul wrote. And uh, he said this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty scary verse, right? But it goes on and it says, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is transformational. It not only announces the forgiveness of sins because Jesus has paid the price and he has atoned for us, but it also proclaims the fact that God's Spirit comes to work in our lives and changes us from the inside out. And so the gospel's transformational in the church is a bunch of changed people. It changes lives. And we're all in the process of transformation if we're followers of Jesus. It's a great thing. You know, I, I, I've told this story before, but it just always strikes me. David Bennett, I, I remember reading his like autobiography, and here was a guy that uh, had very strong same-sex sexual desires, and he was living, you know, in, with a number of guys, you know, in intimacy with them. And, uh, but he knew about the, what the Bible says, that this is like wrong to, to live like this. And he just hated this verse. You know, back there, it's, he goes like, well, look at that, you know, and he's going like, I am disqualified from ever being with, with God. God is like my enemy. And then when he became a believer and he started reading the Bible again, reading it carefully, and he, started, and he saw this verse, verse 11, he, that verse, this 1 Corinthians 6 thing, became changed from being the most hated verse in his life to his all-time favorite. Because it says there, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you know what? You know what that verse means? It means there's going to be people in heaven just like me, people who've had these strong desires but through the power of the Lord, we were able to say no, and we were able to be cleansed of the wrongs that we had done. 
And he's going like, wow, God is like including all sinners in this thing. And he's going like, come on in and let me not only forgive you and make you right with me, but he's saying, I want to change your life. It became a real comfort. And Bonhoeffer started seeing these people in this, in this church in New York City and how they were walking the walk and how this was a lifestyle for them. He was going like, oh, this is really interesting. This is so great. And when he came back to Germany, no, he started referring to the Bible as the Word of God. And he started realizing, hey, theology isn't about just kind of learning some abstract truths, but it's like finding out who God is and what that means for our lives. He, uh, the thoughts that he, that he, you know, the insights that he got there, those kept percolating in him, and they ended up inspiring this book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's the classic book by Bonhoeffer. If most people who know about him know it, know about him because uh, of having read this, this Christian classic right here. And this is a book where he talked about cheap grace, where he talked about cheap grace is grace without discipleship. And uh, one of the things he's, that he says in the book is, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You know, so he, he realized what the church was all about. It's about discipleship. It's about drawing people close to the Lord and spurring one, and on, one another on toward love and good deeds, like it says in the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, I just thought of this as kind of like a little parallel to this, like an illustration. So those are uh, my granddaughters who live in St. Louis. That's Cecilia, who's six on the left, and Vivian, who's three on the right. So on Thursday, it was their dad's 41st birthday. And so, hey, what, what happened on your birthday there, John? He said, well, he said, Cecilia, the one on the left, wished me an enthusiastic happy birthday. She's been working on a present for me all week. Vivian on the right. Vivian refused to say happy birthday until she'd eaten breakfast, but by then she had forgotten. Now, those are the two, those are the two churches, right? The German church that uh, Bonhoeffer was, had always experienced his life, that's Vivian. You know, they aren't, weren't a real worshiping church, and they weren't a, wor- a church that was putting anything into practice. Cecilia over there on the left, that was the church in Harlem, the one that he said, that's what it's really all about. They're putting it into action, and they're doing the worship stuff too. They'll sing happy birthday to the Lord, you know. Um, in 32, Bonhoeffer was a pastor, and he was, uh, that's a confirmation class of his there on the right, and uh, he, here he is, he's about 26 years old at this time. So you had to wait till you were 25 in Germany to be ordained. So he was like happily in this ministry, but things were starting to happen in Germany, and things were not, were not going well. Uh, if you know anything about your world history, you know that Germany lost World War I, and they paid a huge price for losing it. And not only was the country defeated and humiliated and depressed, but uh, the terms that the, the, the side that won, England and the U.S. and France, imposed on Germany, destroyed their economy. Uh, there was huge unemployment. The economy was in tatters. Uh, there was weak national leadership. 
There was fighting with, you know, left-wing militias versus right-wing militias. Um, and it was just like, it was like ramping up the divisiveness in the country, the polarization that was going on, and weak incompetent leadership at the top. It was like inflation as the country tried to spend its way out of like economic problems. The currency got more and more worthless. That picture that's there on the right is a woman actually shoveling currency, you know, like what we would call like $100 bills into a furnace to heat her house because the, the, it was such hyperinflation going on. One day there's a, a story of a man, it's a true story, where he had, you know, he had enough of these bills to fill up an entire bushel basket. So he took the bushel basket to the store because that's how much you were going to have to pay for one loaf of bread. As he's talking to the baker, he puts the, the bushel basket down on the ground. Somebody came in, dumped all the money out, and stole the bushel basket. That's how worthless the currency was. So people are in a jam and they're going like, what are we going to do? We need a strong leader. We need, finally, we need somebody who's actually competent at the helm here. You know, you can see little rumblings of this right now, like in America, just on a smaller level. But this was this on steroids, right? And there's always people who are willing to fill vacuums in leadership. And not, many times they're not very good people. And if you know your history, you know that in 1933, Hitler was able to ascend to power by going, I'm going to bring strong leadership, and I can bring solutions, and I can, I can make things better in this country, and here he is accepting the chancellorship from Hindenburg. Well, what happened here uh, is this. Hitler, and you may know this, he despised Christianity. He was actually on the rolls of the German church, uh, but he hated Christianity. Um, and he, here's a quote from him uh, that Goebbels, his propaganda minister, got. Christianity is a religion fit only for slaves. I detest its ethics in particular. Hitler said the Ten Commandments are life-sucking commandments. He hated especially the fact that the Bible teaches to turn the other cheek. It, it says to love your enemies. It says to minister to the poor, to take care of the helpless, to, to uh, love the weak. He, he thought that was such a, a slave mentality. He said his teaching is a rebellion against the natural law of selection by struggle and the survival of the fittest. You know, as a social Darwinist, he's going, this is just absolutely wrong and it's terrible for our country. Uh, one time Hitler said this, he goes, you see, it's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. The fact that Christianity was like so-called religion of the country. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regard sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Muslim religion, too, would have been more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? And so Hitler said, we've got to do something about this. But he was afraid to move against the Christian church because it had such wide adherence, right? He knew he could, he could get rid of the Jews because they had always been like scapegoats in the country and blamed for everything that would go wrong. But Christianity, he, and so he came up with an idea of infiltrating the church. And he, he started exploiting Christian teachers, like, for instance, Luther. If you know anything about Luther, you know he did a lot of good. But he also had a streak of anti-Semitism, which was pretty ugly. And so Hitler took advantage of this. And this is a propaganda poster from 1933 when Hitler first took over. 
Uh, and the translation of the German there is, Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching provide the best defense for the German people. And then Hitler started infiltrating the church by setting up kind of a parallel inside structure. So there was like, this was called the, uh, the German, the National German ch uh, Church. That was their emblem right there with a swastika on the cross, right? Uh, the, the government appointed Bishop Ludwig Mueller to be like the head of the, of the church in the north. And Mueller's idea was to get rid of all Jewish influences from the church, which is absurd, right? But he, he goes, okay, we've got to eliminate the Old Testament. That's got to go. You know, the Psalms, they're done, you know? And if anybody is like a, Christian, a Jewish convert, they are disqualified from holding any kind of office in the church. It was things like this. The goal, this was the goal that they had stated that they were hoping they could work toward. So the National Reich, you know, German church claims exclusive right and control over all churches. The National Church is determined to exterminate foreign Christian faiths imported into Germany in the ill-omened year of 800. That's when the missionaries came uh, to Germany and said, you know, uh, enough with this pagan Thor religion and let's, let's hear about Jesus, okay? That was the ill-omened year of 800. The National Church demands immediate cessation of the publishing and dissemination of the Bible. The National Church will clear away from its altars all crucifixes, Bibles, and pictures of saints. And on the altars there must be nothing but Mein Kampf, that's Hitler's autobiography, and to the left of the altar a sword. Now they couldn't imp imp you know, impose this right away. They didn't have the strength to do it. But they started doing things like this, try, you know, introducing like Nazi imagery, National Socialist imagery, uh, onto altars in churches where they where they could get away with it. And they were the first ones to really try to take Christ out of Christmas. So they produced, like, you know, National Socialist ornaments. They changed Silent Night to Exalted Night, made it really about uh, the German state and its, and its greatness, uh, replaced the stars at the top of trees because they were considered Jewish symbols, you know, it, just things like that, little by little. Now, what was happening in the church was that um, the, the average believers were just kind of going like, well, you know, we'll ride this out, you know, we don't want to judge about this, and, you know, we can put up with it. And Bonhoeffer's like, no, you know, I gotta, I, we can't accept this kind of stuff. This is idolatry that's going on right here. We must do something. So he took up the fight against the German church, and uh, he formed, he and some pastor associates and other believers formed what was called the confessing church. You know how Doug leads us through the, the apostolic creed. That's, we call it a, a confession because it's like we're agreeing to this. This is what we believe. And so the confessing church said, we're going to hold true to what the Bible says. We're not going to let this anti-biblical streak infiltrate the church. On the left side there, you see like a uh, stormtroopers holding signs promoting the German church as people are like going into the church. And there's two guys there on the right. The guy on the left is holding up a poster for the German church, and the guy on the right is holding up a church for the uh, a poster for the confessing church because they were having elections about who was going to be running this particular this particular church here. Uh, Von Hafer also formed 
a seminary at Finkenwalde. So this was an underground seminary that was going to train up pastors and leaders for the church. The Gestapo came after them, and so they had to go underground. And pastors would go to live with the seminary students, and they would meet in barns and wherever they could get away with it. Uh, And they were kind of on the run from the government, which was trying to put an end to this illegal seminary and the confessing church. During this time, over 6,000 pastors were either imprisoned or um, killed by the National Socialists, you know, who were running, who were running um, Germany at this time, Hitler and his government. Um, and it was at this time that Bonhoeffer wrote Life Together, the book that we're going to be reading. And he, st- he realized, you know, uh, vividly that we need one another. We need to support one another through times like this. Um, there's a quote from the book here. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. We need one another. It's so important that we gather here together, that we see one another, that we're here to encourage one another, lift each other up and share the truth with each other because it's so easy as individuals just to get overwhelmed, you know, in our, in our society. There was a par- this is interesting to me. There was a parallel development going on in China. Now, this is actually 10 years after Bonhoeffer, but there was a, a great Christian leader named Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee could see that the communists were going to take over, and he knew this was going to be horrible for the church. And so he made it a point, just like Bonhoeffer was, to train up people in basic Christian teaching and to uh, also encourage people to form house churches because he knew the church was going to have to uh, go underground just like it was in Germany. Um, And the same thing happened to Watchman Nee that happened uh, to Bonhoeffer. And you know, the guy that uh, was really their predecessor, the prototype, was John the Baptist, wasn't he? I mean, when he came, we're talking about the same thing. There was a, kind of a, a church that, or a followers of the Lord, but they were deteriorating too under leadership that had gone away from the Bible. And um, in John, Matthew 3, you can see this. It says, when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these were largely German church types, right? Coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? You know, the coming wrath, things are going to get tough, right? And then he says, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. He's going like, you guys need to be like that, that church in New York City and not like that German church. You need to, it's got to be a whole lifestyle, right? And then he said, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. Hey, we're good Germans, you know, like, hey, we're on the church rolls or something like that. He's going, this is, a, this is something that's real. John preached the same thing. You know, I think about this, the same thing as I think about our times, too. We're not being infiltrated by national socialism here or communism, but what's happening in our time is we're being, in, we're being infiltrated by a lot of secularism, aren't we? where there's a lot of like, hey, don't believe what the Bible says about this, you know, and just like, 
And it's, it's just like we're being asked to compromise by the, our culture, which is going down a road of, of just refusing to repent. And so we find ourselves in the same position. And I think you and I need to make up our minds too, don't we? I need to make up my mind. You need to make up your mind. Are we going to be German Christians and just kind of drift and coast? Or are we going to take a stand and say, here I stand. You know, I'm going to stand on the, on the word of God. I'm going to trust Jesus and I'm going to walk with him. In 1939, uh, Bonhoeffer could see that war was going to happen. And he realized that he was going to be called to serve in the German army. And he thought, I cannot in good conscience fight in Hitler's army right here. This is an unjust war. This is wrong. And I can't support what the state is doing in this situation. And so he had some friends in high places, and they arranged for him to get a visa to come to America. And he figured out he could wait out the war in America and not have to deal with this question. So he took a, a boat over to America, and he was there for about three weeks. And then he thought, i got to go back. And he came back to Germany, and his family went, why did you come back? Ridiculous. You're in trouble now. And he said, I realize I've made a mistake by coming to the United States I must stand by the Christians of Germany during this difficult time in our national history. I will have no right to participate in the reestablishment of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share this time of trial with my people. Um, the Gestapo was kind of like watching him very closely. But what Bonhoeffer did, he had a brother-in-law who was in the Abwehr. The Abwehr was the German military intelligence uh, it's kind of like the CIA. And they were one group in the country that was pretty much opposed to Hitler, trying to do something about that. And so he worked for them. And uh, what happened, though, was because he had international travel connections, he was arrested by the Gestapo when they caught him smuggling 14 Jews out of the country to go to Switzerland. And so he was sent to the prison that you see in the picture on the right there. It's Tefel Prison in Berlin. It's still, it's still there. This prison was not a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer was favored by the guards there, and he went and he ministered to all the prisoners there. He, he preached as he could. He uh, just, you know, prayed with people there. And uh, the guards, you know, he, he led even some guards to the Lord in that, at that prison. But during that time, and when he was working for the Abwehr, he got involved in a plot that the Abwehr had to assassinate Hitler. And uh, this was the Valkyrie Conspiracy. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie about that, starring Tom Cruise. Interesting that we'd have a connection between Tom Cruise and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's the way things go, right? Um, they wanted, they realized the only way they were going to... Um, to do things right and defend the country was to kill Hitler. And if you know how that worked out, in 1944, the bomb went off near Hitler, but he survived. And what happened there was that uh, uh, leaders of the Abwehr were rounded up, and they were tortured by the Gestapo, and Bonhoeffer's name, they revealed that Bonhoeffer was also part of the plot. And people go like, well, Bonhoeffer, you're a Bible-believing Christian. How could you get involved in a plot to assassinate the leader of the country? Bonhoeffer said this, If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe 
then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. He's saying, you know, you can't be a pacifist when great evil is done. You can't be a guy who, I'm not going to be a soldier when there are concentration camps that are killing Jews. You've got to fight the fight as a soldier. And he thought of himself in that way there. And so he became a conspirer there. Well, when his name was revealed as part of this conspiracy, the Gestapo sent him to the concentration camps. And in the last, these were the last days of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer still thought of this as an opportunity to minister to the church. And he said, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. That is not a bad picture of Advent. Isn't that the truth? It's really a picture of the way the gospel works in our life. Um, and he, so he continued to work with people and encourage them to the end, knowing that his days were numbered. And then uh, he was sent to Flossenburg. And there were about, at this point, the Germans were about ready to collapse, the German uh, threat. Uh, the war was just about over. And with about two or three weeks to go in the war, Hitler sent a personal letter to the uh, commandant of Flossenburg and said, hang Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The rest of the people there probably survived the war, but Bonhoeffer was hanged in the courtyard at Flossenburg. Um, Bonhoeffer had this attitude about dying, and he'd always said this. He said, no one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet learned about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour, waiting and looking forward to being released from bodily existence. Death is the last station on the road to freedom. Bonhoeffer was a child of the resurrection, just like you and I are as followers of Jesus. And you know, in living in times like this where there's still a lot of hysteria in the air and fear and people, you know, greatly fearing death, things like this, it's like we need to just stand on the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and he lives and he lives in us and we have his resurrection life. And that's what Bonhoeffer was trusting in. And when uh, they hanged him, these were his last words. He said, this was April 9th, 1945. This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. You know, as I think about Bonhoeffer and just uh, think about what an awesome guy he was, I think about these words that I remember reading from uh, The Cost of Discipleship. It's one of the themes of the book. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that dying is, is, there could be a literal thing there, just like he paid with his life for what he was doing uh, in the cause of Jesus Christ. But it's also in a figurative sense too, isn't it? Because he calls us to die to our selfishness. Uh, calls us to die to those desires that we have that go against what he plainly tells us to do. He calls us to die to ourselves. And that's what it means to be a Christian. But Jesus says, hey, when that kernel of wheat is buried in the ground, it's going to produce life. And that's where the, the resurrected life comes out of that dying and giving ourselves to the Lord. We've been crucified with Christ, but we've been raised with him too. And that is our living hope. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, first of all, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just thank you for this, this brother in the Lord who, um, you know, that you used in such mighty ways. And I Thank you for all the, the prophets that you've raised up and 
people in our lives who've spoken into our lives as well and encouraged us. And I pray, Lord, that we can learn from uh, his example and what you've revealed to him to reveal to us in, the, in this book, uh, Life Together. And I pray, Lord, that you would just unify us as a church and build us into more and more encouragers, people who lift one another up and encourage one another and, and spur one another on as we see times get worse and worse in our uh, country too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.